Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Arguable that Australia, along with all of the other countries in the Genocide Convention, should be using uh, diplomatic and political efforts to engage with Israel and urge Israel to adhere to the provisional measures order of the court. The International Court of Justice has made provisional rulings in the case brought against Israel by South Africa. Also... What we know is that LGBTIQA people are at similar or higher risk of sexual violence and domestic violence and that we're experiencing that violence in different contexts, in different sorts of ways than other communities. The University of New South Wales is conducting the first national level research survey into how LGBTQIA plus Australians experience sexual violence. And later today... The US courts have been using those tools to make decisions about how long someone has to serve their sentence before they can get parole. Artificial intelligence is now being used in courtrooms across the world. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today... Last week, First Nations communities and non-Indigenous Australians gathered at rallies across the country, protesting Invasion Day. It's the first protest following last year's Voice to Parliament referendum, and First Nations leaders and activists are demanding the federal government listen to calls from elders and grassroots movements. Reporting from the Mianjin rally was The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. Last Friday, many Australians and First Nations communities gathered in capital and regional cities to protest on Invasion Day. The protest's aim is to change the date of Australia Day. But this year it was more than changing the date. Protesters want the federal government to fix the First Nations' incarceration rates and sovereignty after a voice to parliament referendum was defeated last October. Aboriginal activist and protest organizer from Mianjin, Sam Watson, says the support from the community is powerful. I mean, I was so excited I couldn't sleep last night. You know, this is incredible to see, you know, the park so full, people carrying flags and banners. I see some uh, trade union flags. I see some Palestinian flags. I've seen some West Papuan flags. You know, the solidarity that we see on a day like today is is just incredible like you know it's so easy to feel like we're alone but days like today really changed that up last year was one of uh, it was a terrible year to be honest with the voice to parliament and all these uh, incarcerations coming up um what are you expecting this year this year i think that grassroots aboriginal people people who don't hold positions in corporations or governments need to you know, set the agenda for what we want. We need to set the agenda about what we fight for and what we organise around. Um, We don't need that agenda set by the government. A lot of the banners here today are talking about land back and liberation. You know, what, what I can say about that is that we are still in a position where we do not have land rights. We're in a position where we do not have self determination. 
And those are things that we can fight for and things that we can measure uh, tangibly, you know, how much power we have, how much land that we have, and, you know, things that we that we are entitled to. We're entitled to fight for those things. We are well within our rights to engage in a struggle for those aims. It's been lately, you know, these conversations about treaty. What are your thoughts and what is, what's your stance on that? When we look at treaties, we need to remember that the treaties uh, in every colonial country in the world have been violated in the so-called United States of America, they've been violated in so-called Canada, they've been violated in so-called South America, they've been violated in so-called New Zealand by these colonial states uh, who have, you know, violated them to make money. And while we live in a system where money is the top priority for the people in power, we need to be aware that a treaty will not be enough. That we will need to keep struggling even when we have treaties. And how can we non-Indigenous people support you in this journey? I think the first step for non-Indigenous people um, in supporting Aboriginal people is to realize that you have something in common with us. And that is the same people that oppress us, oppress you, whether you're working class, whether you're a, a woman, uh, whether you're queer, um, it's the same people who write laws that hold you back from obtaining your full rights that write laws that hold us back from obtaining our full rights. This year, the Invasion Day organizers invited protesters demanding a ceasefire in Gaza to join the cause. Eduardo is one of the many protesters gathering in Mianjin and says First Nations people and Palestinians share a similar story. On Invasion Day, we're here because we think that colonialism is basically colonialism everywhere. And whether you are in Latin America, you know, and in Australia, as well as other parts of the world as well. So colonial countries been invading other countries. So that's happened in Australia. It's happening in Gaza, as we speak now. And uh, yeah, so it's going on all around the world. That's why we're here. Cool. And what would you like to see, you know, the government to do uh, in Gaza and also with the First Nations peoples? What I'd like to see is, well, what they are asking at this stage is a treaty, you know, it's very important for them. And I think that's the way that they should be, you know, getting that is giving a, another step into reconciliation and moving forward to uh, have a better society. Uh, the ideal thing is could be a, a little bit different, but yeah, we have to realize that we are in this society and in a modern society, capitalist society that maybe won't grant full rights to the indigenous people, but at least something that they can uh, be proud of. That was protest attendee Eduardo, ending that story by The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme.
The International Court of Justice has made provisional rulings in the case brought against Israel by South Africa. The ICJ has not yet ruled on whether Israel has committed genocide, but the preliminary orders issued by the court order Israel to prevent genocidal acts in Gaza. I spoke with ANU Professor of International Law, Donald Rothwell. So the International Court issued what are called provisional measures on Friday the 26th of January. In doing so, the court found that there was a plausible case before it that Israel was conducting acts of genocide during its Gaza military campaign. And the court has issued a series of orders to place limits and constraints around which Israel continues to conduct its military operations in Gaza, the need for Israel to provide humanitarian assistance and aid to uh, Palestinians in Gaza, and for Israel to report back to the National Court on the 26th of February in terms of its progress and response to those provisional measures orders. Now, most importantly, there is no finding at all that Israel has committed acts of genocide, and ultimately that would be a determination by the court at a much later stage in the proceedings. So the word plausible is that there there's room for further investigation into this. How long would something like that take? Well, that's ultimately part of the timetable that the court will set in conjunction with South Africa and Israel. Uh, normally cases like this could take anywhere between four to five years, but a genocide case involves additional levels of evidentiary complexity. So we could even be looking at a much longer time frame than four to five years. Mm-hmm. And so an, an ICJ decision is final and binding and, and it can't be appealed. But how will this or, or can it be enforced? Well, the first critical question is, how is Israel going to respond to the decision? Israel is under an obligation now as a party to the Genocide Convention and indeed as a party to these proceedings to report back to the court. Uh, And indeed, uh, of course, there are ongoing discussions at the moment with respect to the potential for a ceasefire. If there was a ceasefire in Gaza, that would immediately see Israel effectively meet many of the obligations imposed upon it. Do we know what the response would be or what the outcomes would be if Israel came back and they were found to not have met these provisions? Well, ultimately, uh, this is not a matter in which the international court itself has any enforcement capability. Uh, That is a matter that would need to be taken up ultimately by the United Nations uh, Security Council. The Security Council has rarely exercised its enforcement uh, powers, which it has under the Charter of the United Nations. And ultimately, of course, that would be a political process uh, in which there would be a need for discussion and debate within the Security Council as to how it would respond. Even though they're not directly involved, South Africa brought the case forward because they are a signatory of the Genocide Convention. Seeing as Australia and lots of other countries are also party to the Convention, what are Australia's and these other countries' obligations giving this ruling? Well, at a minimum, every state which is a party to the Genocide Convention, including, as you say, Australia, is under an obligation to ensure that acts of genocide and incitement to genocide is prevented under its uh, domestic law. Um, And Australia does that uh, under the provisions of the Commonwealth uh, Criminal Code. But in in a broader sense, um, it's arguable that a country like Australia should be concerned about this decision by the International Court, even at a preliminary phase, 
that the provisional measures have said that there's a plausible case to be made here that Israel is engaging in genocidal acts. And so to that end, it's arguable that Australia, along with all of the other countries in the Genocide Convention, should be using uh, diplomatic and political efforts uh, to engage with Israel and urge Israel to adhere to the provisional measures order of the court. Do you think following this ruling that we'll see Australia and, and other countries review their economic or trade or military ties with Israel to make sure that they aren't supporting a plausible case of genocide? I, I think that, that is certainly a possibility. Um, given the profile of this case, given the extent of some relations that countries have with Israel uh, at a military and economic level, uh, and given the gravity of the allegations being made against Israel with respect to acts of genocide, it is entirely possible that some countries will revisit the extent of those interactions at at this time. But most importantly, the court hasn't said anything at all about Israel's right of self-defence. It's silent on that point, and indeed it did not accept the South African argument that there be a ceasefire uh, in Gaza. So Israel retains the right of being able to exercise self-defence against the attacks perpetrated by Hamas and indeed any other attacks that Israel might face from any other state or non-state actor. ANU Professor Donald Rothwell there, ending that report. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. Research suggests LGBTIQA plus people experience higher rates of sexual violence than the broader Australian population. However, until recently, there has never been national level research into how LGBTIQA plus people experience sexual violence in Australia. The Gender Violence Research Network from the University of New South Wales is collecting important information from all diversities of the LGBTIQA plus community on their experiences of sexual violence. So the survey is part of a package of work we've been doing for about five years looking at domestic violence and sexual violence as it's being experienced by LGBTIQA Australians. So over the last five to ten years, Australia's been having a really important conversation about domestic violence and sexual assault with a particular focus on violence against women, which is really important and understandable. But what we know is that LGBTIQA people are at similar or higher risk of sexual violence and domestic violence, and that we're experiencing that violence in different contexts, in different sorts of ways than other communities. So the survey is the first time that we've got the opportunity to develop a national picture of LGBTIQA communities and what our attitudes and views are, particularly about sexual violence. So as you mentioned, we know that the LGBTIQ plus community sector is more vulnerable for sexual violence. Are there statistics that we can back off 
this info? So we've got some smaller surveys and studies here in Australia and also overseas. And what they find, for example, you know, adult men compared to adult women on average have lower rates of sexual assault. And one of those reasons is that most men are heterosexual. They're engaging with women uh, and women are by and large, for the most part, not, not sexually violent. Now, that's different for gay men because sexually engaging with men actually is, is a risk. You know, men have got higher rates of sexual aggression. So, for example, gay men have equivalent rates of sexual assault as heterosexual women. But that's also true when we look at women who have sex with women. They're also reporting experiences of sexual assault by other women that I think in our normal ways of understanding sexual violence, it just doesn't quite make sense. And so we really want to just dig into the data and try and understand, you know, what are some of the risk factors for sexual violence? What are some of the contexts in which it's taking place? And also, how is the community intervening? Because it's really important to acknowledge that in the LGBTIQA community, we've got a long history of looking after each other. How important is to collect data on sexual violence from the LGBTIQ plus community and its intersections, as in with First Nations, cult communities, etc.? Yeah, look, it's a great question, and it's really important. The way in which, at the moment, we track, as a country, we track our progress around the prevention of sexual and domestic violence is through surveys that ask questions about gender equality, so really ask about people's attitudes to equality between men and women, which is really important broadly, but not specifically relevant to sexual and domestic violence LGBTIQA communities because this is violence that's not necessarily taking place between a man and a woman. So that's really important. But we can't generalize, you know, the LGBTIQA community is very diverse, very different, different cultural backgrounds, different language groups. And of course, for First Nations people, including brother boys and sister girls, you know, including people who are living in remote and regional communities. So my First Nations colleague, Professor Vanessa uh, Leah Matt, uh, has actually been flying out to regional and remote communities uh, and touching base on the ground, spending time on the ground, talking with communities, talking with community organisations to really encourage people to fill out the survey that maybe otherwise we just wouldn't be able to reach. Now, how is this issue of sexual violence impacts First Nations people and cult communities? Well, it impacts different communities in a range of different ways. Uh, and we know that, for example, for cow communities where there are cultural and linguistic barriers simply to help seeking, it can be really difficult to know where to go. And depending on people's cultural background, there can be a lot of shame and there can be a lot of concern um, that anyone would know that they might be LGBTIQA. Now, Michael, after collecting the data, what's the future work you expect to do with it? So the work is funded under the National Plan to Prevent Violence Against Women and Children. So it's funded under the Commonwealth Plan to Prevent Domestic and Sexual Violence. So once we have the data, it's a matter of working firstly directly with policymakers and with government so that they clearly understand what's similar about LGBTIQA experiences of sexual violence, but also what's different from other communities And how might the government develop their approach to sexual violence uh, in order to make sure that it's inclusive of LGBTIQA people? That was Professor Michael Salter from UNSW, ending that report by The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. A different take on Australian current affairs. This is The Wire on your community radio. 
artificial intelligence is now being used in courtrooms across the world. But to what extent is AI actually being used? And how are these latest technologies employed in a court of law? The Wire's Tony Pankalewick discussed the efficiency and ethical implications of AI in a legal setting with Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses, Director of the Allens Hub for Technology, Law and Innovation at the University of New South Wales. So a lot of the new stuff is coming in and there's a wide variety of different kinds of AI, but as a general category, it's not new. So there's a number of things that have been either more exciting or more controversial that have come into play recently. One example would be that the idea of live transcription of court proceedings and live translation of court proceedings, which obviously enhances open justice for people who, particularly if English is not their first language, who want to understand what's happening in proceedings, that's obviously an exciting issue you look into things that are maybe less exciting and more on the controversial end of the scale, you've got the use of risk assessment tools. This is particularly common in America where data-driven machine learning type tools are used to assess the risk that a criminal defendant will re-offend again if they're not in prison, if they're not in jail, so if they get bail or if they get parole. So in that sense, the US courts have been using those tools to make decisions about how long someone has to serve their sentence before they can get parole or to make decisions about whether someone is released on bail. So that is a much more controversial example. And then the idea of having your proceedings heard before an avatar AI judge. Have other countries' courtrooms, which use AI, figured a way to update a system if there are assumptions being made which may no longer be valid or accurate in a case? Can an AI system be overridden in this type of unanticipated event? And are there systems self-programmed to change over time? an AI system and you're relying on it for something important, and I would actually say that includes back office function, the properties of that system absolutely need to be understood and the alignment of the properties of the system with the system's purpose absolutely need to be understood. So if, for example, a system in whatever application it's being used needs to be absolutely current, then chat DPT isn't your tool because it is always based on a fixed point in time and then it is not the tool for something that needs to be up to date. There are, of course, AI systems, including systems based on continuous learning and so forth, that can be up to date. And that is, in some circumstances, better. But it also actually raises fresh questions because what it means, if you're thinking about treating people equally, if a system is constantly changing because it's constantly staying up to date, two things will happen. One is people who come into court on different days will be treated differently, which might be fine, but I'm just flagging that as potentially an issue. And then the second thing that will happen as a result of that constantly keeping up to date is it becomes very hard to ask questions later. Unless you have really good version control and you're tracking what version did which thing and at which version was used, it's very hard later on if something does go wrong. And the one thing we can be sure about with computers is that stuff goes wrong. If something does go wrong, how do you work out what it is that went wrong? Unless you've kept track for every relevant decision that's made, all of the relevant properties of the version at that point so that you can go back and get that version of the tool and understand what that version of the tool did and why. Which one is the best kind of system 
for a particular context is going to depend not on the same answer for everything, but it's going to depend on that context. Where do you foresee AI evolving in the industry in the future? AI replacing judges, AI making decisions, even in matters where the amounts are low, I think no. I can imagine mechanisms for getting those lower value matters in terms of managing them in court workloads and putting them on the same list and that kind of thing so that you know one judge can hear a lot of them relatively quickly and that AI might be able to assist in helping them deal with those cases more quickly. But I can't imagine that we'd ever say that someone actually brings a matter to court, that that wouldn't be heard by a fully qualified human judge in Australia. That's my prediction. That was Professor Lyria Bennett-Moses from UNSW there, speaking with The Wire's Tony Pankalewick. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbul and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on The Wire.